For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is Love Your Enemies, Love Your Enemies. This is part two, Romans chapter 12, verse 14. In our last look now at Romans chapter 12 together, Paul is in this text unpacking the implications of the gospel with respect to the exhortation that we find in verse nine. Let love be without hypocrisy. Literally an indicative statement, love without hypocrisy. And if our love for one another is going to be free from the stain of hypocrisy, then our love for one another will be after the example of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Our love will be like his love. First John chapter three, verse 16, by this we know love, not by what the world teaches us, not by what comes out of our sinful flesh, but by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to, following after his example, lay down our lives for the brethren. Therefore, brothers and sisters, if we are going to love, if we're going to love one another, even if we're going to love our enemies after the example of the one who laid down his life for us, then, verse 9, our love will be found adhering to the moral and ethical standards of his word, to the moral and ethical standards of his law. Our love will abhor that which is evil and will cling to that which is good. Our love will have the warmth and the affection. It will have the affectionate delight of a brotherly or a familial love. Verse 10, running ahead, as it were, in giving preference or showing deference to our brother, esteeming our brother more highly than ourselves. It will be fervent, zealous, earnest, diligent, hardworking, verse 11, because our love for one another is in the service of the Lord Christ. Our love will bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, unfailing in the midst of tribulation, unfailing, steadfast, continuing in dependence upon God in prayer. It will be a love that is generous, generous in the use of material resources, generous in the use of our time, our energy, our gifts, generous to bless both the saints that we know and the saints that we don't. And lastly, after the example of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, it will be a love that extends even to our enemies. After the example of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, it will be a love that extends especially to our enemies if we're going to love the way that Christ has loved us. And knowing, knowing that this is the way that God himself has demonstrated his own love toward us through the gospel of his son, knowing this, you must therefore, verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Can you see how that commandment of Paul in verse 14 is grounded in the gospel, right? It's grounded in the gospel. So then, in applying biblical principles that arise from our understanding of the gospel, Paul now extends the reach of those principles to include not only love for those with whom we share fellowship, but Paul expands the reach or extends the reach of those principles to include those with whom we do not share fellowship. 
Paul exhorts us to love our enemies. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The last week, in our consideration of this text, we examined Paul's command in the context for which it is intended. Paul gives his command in a context, and that command is given in the context of persecution. It's given in the context of adversity, difficulty, life in the church, a life in this world for the Christian is not going to be a bed of ease. It's not going to be a couch of comfort. It's going to be difficulty. It's going to, it's going to be filled with tribulation. It is through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. And if we remember the connection of verse 14 to verse 13 from last week, as you pursue a Christ-like love for those within your sphere, whether you're uh, at home in your family, uh, at work in the church, as you pursue a Christ-like love for those within your sphere, there will be those in pursuit of you with malice. That's what that word persecution refers to there. They will be the, there will be those in pursuit of you with malice. Paul's concern in the text is not the fact that there will be persecution. Paul's concern in the text is how we respond to it when it comes. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. And how are you going to respond when it comes? We are to bless those who persecute us, bless and do not curse. Now the first place that we look for an example of how we're to respond, an example of that principle in action, was under the law in Exodus 23. And if you remember that text, the wicked are circulating false reports in verses one through three. They have stirred up a mob, the majority, to do evil. There are those who testify against you to turn aside many in perverting justice. And then Moses says this in verse four, if you meet your enemy's ox or if you meet your enemy's donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. You don't kick the donkey and leave him in a ditch right? because you're angry with your enemy. If you see the donkey, verse five, the one hates you lying under its burden and you would re uh, refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. And with Paul, we ask the question, is it really oxen that God is concerned about? Is it really ultimately that donkey that God is concerned about? No. The concern of God's law from Exodus 23 is how we respond to those who have treated us unjustly. And particularly, considering the application of God's law, what, is God, what does God's law teach us? God's law teaches us how to love the Lord our God with all our heart and how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in light of scripture, we might ask with those in the Bible, well, who is our neighbor? Well, it just so happens in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, that our neighbor is our enemy, right? We're to love our neighbor as ourself. The Lord himself then picks up that very principle from Exodus 23. He picks up that very principle in his exposition of the law from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, where he says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And we don't even know where that came from. <laughs> That's the way they viewed that text. You shall hate your enemy. Well, we know where that comes from. That comes out of fallen flesh. That comes out of this world. That's not a principle that we get from God's word. But I say to you, the Lord Jesus Christ himself says, verse 44, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, that you may reflect his image, his, whose image you bear. 
then you may love the way that he loves. Four, because he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. Though they are enemies of God, God responds with grace. God responds with mercy. God responds with compassion. God demonstrates his kindness, demonstrates his patience, his long-suffering, his forbearance, and his forbearance should lead them to repentance. Many have a tendency to think of God as having nothing but hate for the wicked. You'll see on both extremes, right? You, You go down the highway and you see those billboards, God is not mad. The Bible clearly states that God is angry with the wicked every day. So where they're getting that from, we don't know that either. That's coming out of fallen human sinful flesh. But the Bible and many have the tendency to think of God as nothing, as having nothing but hate for the wicked, that he is filled with wrath, that he's broiling with anger. But while the Bible does say that God is angry with the wicked every day, and while there is a day appointed when his common grace to the wicked will be swallowed up in their judgment, The Bible also refers to God as doing good to those who are made in his image. Acts 14, not leaving himself without a witness to them. Paul says in that God did good for them, giving them rain from heaven, fruitful seasons. In that God has done good for them, filling their hearts with food and gladness. In that God does good for them. Here in Matthew 5, making his sun rise on them, making his rain fall upon them to water their crops. And we're reminded preeminently, brothers and sisters, that this is how God has loved you. This is how God has loved me. Demonstrating his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while you and I were enemies of God by wicked works, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. That, brothers and sisters, is a love that is without hypocrisy. You see, that's a sincere love, a genuine love. That that is the love that adorns the gospel. That is the love that magnifies the grace and mercy of God. And God's people embrace him in worship and in praise because of the love with which we've been loved. Amen? It's that kind of love that adorns the gospel. Now, it's from these texts, from these texts in the Bible, that we have derived the principle, okay? If it is that kind of love, the character of that love that adorns the gospel, that magnifies the grace and mercy of God, then brothers and sisters, we are to love as we have been loved. We are to love our enemies just as we have been loved. Therefore, the Lord says, Luke chapter six, love your enemies, do good and lend. Can you see how that that command is not given in a vacuum? It doesn't spring up out of the ground. It springs up out of the love of God for us, the love of God that is shown in the work of his son on our behalf, in our stead, in our place, on the cross, right? It springs out of the gospel. Love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. That's not a command in isolation. It's given in a context, you see? Because, the Lord says, because he, God, is kind to the unthankful and evil. He was kind to you when you were unthankful. He was kind to you when you were evil. Therefore, in connection to that, be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. 
Love even your enemies. Love especially your enemies. Distinctively Christian love is demonstrated in this, that you bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. There is coming a day when the righteous judgment of God will fall. When both the Lord and the Lord's people will be vindicated. And it is right and just to anticipate that day. Think with me. It is right and it is just and it is good and it is right to anticipate that day. The saints under the altar, Revelation 6, they cry out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. It is right. And it is good to anticipate that day. But until that day, we have the instruction of Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, we live in an age in which the gospel is being preached to the ends of the earth. God is gathering a people out of the world for his own name. That small stone that describes the kingdom of God is growing into a great mountain that will consume the entire earth. And while the gospel is being preached, God's people need to be entreated with the gospel. And this command entreats with love, the love that adorns the gospel, with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his own. We're to show this kind of love as we preach the gospel in this world. It's that principle, right? And it's that balance, that tension, anticipating God's righteous judgment at the same time that we show love and deference, even to our enemies. It's that tension, it's that balance that we see depicted in multiple biblical examples throughout the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, multiple examples. And I thought it'd be helpful for us this morning to work through one example in particular to consider that tension, to consider that balance, and to do that from the example of David in Psalm 35. So turn with me to Psalm 35. Let's consider this principle in action along with this balance From the example of David in Psalm 35. Psalm 35 is a psalm of imprecation. It's an imprecatory prayer, an imprecatory prayer in which our author David here asks the Lord to pour out his judgment upon his enemies. He's going to ask God in Psalm 35 to pour out judgment upon those who are his enemies. And at the same time, David is going to give testimony here. He's going to show by example how he loves his enemies. It would seem to be that thought of an imprecatory prayer, an imprecation, calling for God to pour out his judgment upon your enemies, it would seem that that would be at odds with what we've already considered from Romans chapter 12, at odds with what our Lord taught in the Sermon on the Mount. But there are many, many, many prayers like this in the Bible. The Lord himself, who taught us to love our enemies, pronounced scathing woes against the Pharisees in Matthew 23. It's a form of imprecation, pronouncing woes upon them. Paul, who has taught us to bless those who persecute us, bless and do not curse, Paul names several people by name who betrayed him, including Alexander the coppersmith, 2 Timothy, and says, may the Lord repay him according to his works. That is a prayer of imprecation. 
Revelation chapter 18, the righteous are called to rejoice when the whore Babylon is cast down, when the, the fall of the wicked takes place in Revelation 18, Revelation 19, because they rejoice because God has avenged you on her. There are many, many imprecatory prayers right here in the Psalms. More than 40 examples of imprecation in the Psalms, multiple Psalms that are devoted almost entirely to imprecation. Uh, Psalm 35 here, Psalm 58, Psalm 69. They seem to culminate in Psalm 109, which is just one blistering uh, condemnation, one blistering imprecation after another. Let his children be fatherless. Let his wife be a widow. As he loved cursing, so let it come back to him. Right? So how is that to be held then in harmony with Romans chapter 12, verse 14? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Let's take a look at Psalm 35 and consider this together. David begins this psalm with an introduction in verses one through three, and he pleads with God, God, please rise up and act on my behalf, right? Act on my behalf. As we work through the psalm, I want you to think of David as a representative here of the righteous under persecution. Think of David as David prays, as a representative of the righteous, as the righteous are being persecuted, as you have faced persecution. Have you ever felt persecuted before? Have you ever had someone falsely accuse you? Have you ever had someone slander you or gossip about you? Right? Consider David here a representative of the righteous in his prayer of imprecation. God is our help in the time of our need. Amen? So we are to go to God with this, with this plea. We're to go to God for help. And David does just that. We have a, a, a kind heavenly father who cares for us. So we're to cast our cares on him. And many times Christians, even uh, uh, Christian brothers and sisters will think to themselves, it's just not godly or right for me to pray in that way. And so they don't. When there is a God in heaven who hears their prayer and will come to their aid. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray like David prays. We need to pray this prayer, okay? We need to pray this prayer. David is our representative in learning how to pray this way to the Lord. Verse one, plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. He's crying out to God. Right? Draw out the spear, O God. Stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. There's, a, there's a, a sense of desperation in God's words, and in David's words, amen? Sense of desperation here. In verses one through three, David presents his plea, think with me now, by drawing two pictures. The first picture in verse one depicts a courtroom. And it's a courtroom in which a lawsuit is already in progress. David is being attacked by merciless, false, and malicious witnesses. You ever been maliciously maligned? You ever had someone slander you? Say all manner of things falsely against you for the sake of the Lord? You can relate here to David's plea if you have, right? He cries out to God, literally, plead, O Lord. The word there for plead is a legal term. And it specifically refers to an attorney's plea for his client. David is essentially saying, God, litigate my case with those who litigate against me. Litigate my case, oh God. Can you see how this is a picture from the courtroom? It's the very same expression that we find on the lips of God himself with respect to the son 
in Isaiah 49, 25, where God says, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, I will contend, there it is, I will contend with him who contends with you. God's going to litigate with them who litigate with you. You can hear, can't you? You can hear talionic justice in those words. You can hear God's retributive justice in those words. The one who causes contention will find himself contending with God. God will contend with the one who contends. The one who litigates falsely will have his case, will find his case to be litigated by God. First picture is from the courtroom. The second picture, the end of verse one into verse two and three, depicts a battle, a battlefield. David is being unjustly attacked by those who hate him without cause, and he's calling for God to fight for him. David fought many battles in his life, and if you read through the scriptures, I'm uh, constantly encouraged by reading of David's exploits in the Old Testament. Uh, David, there are several instances where David does not turn to the Lord and ask the Lord's guidance, ask the Lord's direction before getting into a battle. But in every case where David does, God is faithful to lead him and direct his steps. David goes to the Lord. He goes to the Lord when he faces a battle like this. He knows, he knows that he personally doesn't win that battle. He's not going to win that battle. The Lord is going to win that battle through him. The Lord is the one who is the victor. So where does David go when he wants a victory? He goes to God. He goes to God here. David is embattled. He's on the field of battle. There are fierce attackers that are coming against him. And David cries out to the one who can give him help. He cries out to God. God, help me. Help me. I'm being unjustly attacked by those who hate me without cause. They hate me without reason. He's calling for God to fight for him. David is calling for God to do for him what he cannot do for himself. He's going to say in a moment, there are those who are coming against him that are stronger, stronger than he is. He goes to the one who has all strength. He goes to the one who is his strength. He goes to the one whose strength is made perfect in his own weakness. And in both the courtroom and on the battlefield, David pleads with the Lord, say to my soul, I am your salvation. God, I need encouragement from this. I need an assurance of your care for me. I need an assurance of your help uh, in this situation. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. What an awesome thing to hear that from God, amen? We have that from his word. We need to believe it and take it into our own bosom. Now, a couple of brief observations to set the table now in consideration of Psalm 35. One, David is entrusting his cause to God rather than taking matters into his own hands. He's entrusting his, God, his cause to God rather than avenging himself, rather than retaliating, rather than taking matters into his own hands, and rather than sitting back resigned to the fact that this is happening to him. Like a, an idle victim, David is not taking matters into his own hands, and he's not sitting back resigned to his lot in life. He's crying out to God. David, again, was a man of war. David knew full well how to put an end to his enemies, right? David knew how to do it. And David is acting here, though, in complete harmony with the principle that we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. He's acting in harmony with these biblical principles. He's not avenging himself, but rather he is given, giving place to the wrath and the judgment of God. Not avenging himself, giving place to wrath. And two, very important, David considers himself innocent of the charges against him. That's important. 
If David were not innocent of the charges against him, this would be a prayer of repentance rather than a prayer of imprecation. And we have many examples of that in the Psalms as well. Matter of fact, we see in several cases, we see both a prayer of repentance and a prayer of imprecation or examples of imprecation in the same Psalm. But if this were, if David were not innocent of the charges against him, it'd be difficult to pray this prayer. We're going to see, okay? We have many examples though of this in the Psalms where David prays this prayer of imprecation because he considers himself innocent of the charges against him. David knew that he was not sinless. David knew that he was not sinless, but he also knew that he was innocent of the charges that, were, that they were making against him in this case. Look at the text with me, verse seven. Verse seven, without cause, they have hidden their net for me in a pit. They dug that pit without cause for my life. Look at verse 12. They, re they reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. Verse 19, they are wrongfully my enemies. They hate me without a cause. This is not rational. This is not reasonable. Verse 27, let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. That does not mean that David thought himself to be uh, sinless. It just means that he knew himself to be innocent in this matter, right? David in Psalm 35, David has found himself in a circumstance where he is being maliciously slandered, unjustly slandered. He cannot see where he has done anything wrong. And yet there are those who have been stirred up against him without reason. He has not treated them with ill will and yet they attack him. He has sought to do good and then they've returned that good for evil as evil. Their attacks, in other words, are unprovoked. Their attacks are unjustified. And no matter how diligently David might have pursued peace, they're simply bent on treating him with malice. They are determined to bring him down. Notice, though, that David prays, David acts, David conducts himself with a clear conscience in the matter. And it's the only way that you or I could pray like this. Otherwise, you're a self-righteous hypocrite. Can you imagine, with the guilt of sin plaguing your own conscience, the guilt of sin in this matter in which you proclaim or claim that an injustice has been perpetrated and you've got the guilt of that sin on your conscience. Can you imagine praying like this to God? With that, the guilt of that sin on your own conscience, you're praying for God to pour out his judgment upon them? You put yourself in a position of being a self-righteous hypocrite when you pray that way. David has a clear conscience in the matter. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to pray as David does in Psalm 35, we've got to have a clear conscience in the matter. We've got to go to God with our sin. We need to repent of our sin. Take the speck out of our, or the plank out of our own eye before we look at the speck in our brothers, right? And this speck may be in uh, our enemies. After the introduction then in verses one through three, the Psalm then breaks down nicely into three sections. The first of those three sections develop, develops that battlefield theme from the introduction. Okay, and that first section begins in verse four. David prays to God, let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion. Let them be disappointed, in other words, who plot my hurt. Let it come to nothing. Verse five, let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. 
describing them as chaff before the wind, David is referring to their ultimate judgment. That ultimate judgment is what will separate the wheat from the chaff. It's a judgment here, as we see in the Psalm, that's executed by the angel of the Lord himself, the commander of the heavenly host. We see reference to that angel of the Lord many times in the Old Testament, um, that commander of God's armies. He was there uh, at Jericho on the, the borders of the, the Jordan when he met Joshua, right? Uh, he was there with Abraham, announcing to Abraham the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here, David, thinking of that ultimate judgment that separates the wheat from the chaff, says, let the angel of the Lord pursue them. Let the angel of the Lord pursue them. Because, verse seven, because without cause, they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life, twice without cause. They've been plotting against him, much like a hunter would deceitfully set a snare for an animal, right? Hide the snare, set a trap to capture him. Notice twice in verse seven, twice David says, they did this without cause. Again, it doesn't mean that David saw himself as sinless. It means that David has done nothing to merit this hostility. David has done nothing to merit this kind of treatment from them. In commenting on this passage, James Montgomery Boyce said, we do not have to claim that the people of Poland were innocent of all their wrongdoing to say that they did not deserve the destruction brought on them by the German army in World War II. You don't have to say that the people of Poland were sinless to say that it was, they did not deserve that treatment they got in World War II by Adolf Hitler. They have unjustly plotted against me without cause, David says. Therefore, verse eight, let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. Can you see retributive justice, lex talionis in those words? They set a trap for David. David was unaware of their trap. He didn't see. They, set a, they dug a pit for him, covered it up, much like a hunter would cover up a trap for a bear, so to speak, so he couldn't see it before he puts his foot in it. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. Let his net that he has hidden catch himself. Into that very destruction, let him fall. May the cheaters be cheated. May the deceivers be deceived. May those who plan to throw him down be thrown down themselves. Lex Talionis, retributive justice. That, that's God's righteous justice, you see? And when that judgment falls upon them, David will acknowledge that it has come from the Lord. When that justice falls, we know that it comes from the Lord. And verse nine, my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. David is essentially praying, let it be done in my sight, O God, that I might praise you for your righteous judgments. Let it be done, Lord, in our sight, that we might rejoice in his deliverance, rejoice in his salvation. Verse 10, all my bones shall say, with all my strength I will proclaim, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. It's in that act of justice that the righteousness and goodness of God is displayed. It's not simply or only in mercy that God's righteousness and goodness is displayed. It's in that act of just judgment 
It's in that act of retributive justice that God's righteousness and goodness is displayed. And the result of such an astounding victory over the injustice of his enemies would be cause for David to praise and worship. If you remember, we, we discussed this briefly this morning in Sunday school, Haman. Haman was offended with the uncompromising character of Mordecai. Mordecai took a stand for righteousness. And because Haman was offended with Mordecai, Haman plotted to kill all the Jews in the kingdom because one Jew wouldn't pay him the respect that Haman thought he deserved. Mordecai had done nothing to merit the hostility of Haman. The Jews had done nothing to merit the hostility of Haman. And Haman, the Jews, would have been entirely just in praying a prayer just like this one in Psalm 35. They would have been entirely just in praying a prayer of imprecation. And what happened to Haman? If you remember, just like David prays here in Psalm 35, destruction came upon him swiftly, came upon him suddenly, came upon him unexpectedly. He was caught in the net, in the net that he had hidden for Mordecai. He was hung by the neck from the very gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai. And the Jews, what did the Jews do? The Jews rejoiced in the salvation of their God. The Jews rejoiced in the deliverance of their God. They established a feast day <laughs> to commemorate the occasion. They rejoiced in God's deliverance. Now in the second part of the Psalm then, Psalm 35, David then, having picked up the picture of the battlefield, David now picks up the picture of the court case that he introduced in verse one. And it's here that David, in picking up this contrast or picking up this uh, picture of the court case, David contrasts the conduct of his enemies toward him with his own conduct toward them. God, this is how they've treated me. This is how I've treated them. Verse 11. Fierce, that word means malicious. Malicious witnesses rise up. See the use of the term witnesses back in the courtroom. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. That language would suggest that David was caught entirely off guard. He was oblivious to what was happening. Oblivious to the charges that were against him. He was unaware of the plot. Unaware that under the shrub, so to speak, there was a bear trap, Okay. Not only was David innocent of the charges made against him, David was ignorant, <laughs> ignorant of the plot against him. Do you see in this how no one comes to David before the trap is sprung? No one comes to him. The plot is not to maintain David's cause. The plot is to trap him. The plot is to catch him in their trap. And David is caught flat-footed. That's how his enemies conduct themselves toward David. That's how his enemies, that's how enemies conduct themselves. Verse 12, David sums this up. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. This is how I've been treated by my enemies, David says. They reward me evil for good. The natural response, even the natural response would have been re to reward good in kind, to reward good with good, to respond to good with good. But instead they reward evil for good. Robert Martin, commenting on this text, refers to them as pathological. This is a pathological response. Their mental state has been disordered by contempt for David. Their mental state has been disordered, so they don't 
do the natural thing, which would be to respond to good in kind, they do the very unnatural evil thing and they respond to good with evil. It's like Saul irrationally wanting to kill David when David was doing good to Saul. Saul has this um, fever migraine, as it were, right? This evil spirit plaguing him. And what is David doing? David's in the tent playing on the lyre to comfort Saul. And Saul takes a spear in his hand and throws it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. That is irrational. <laughs> that is unreasonable. That's repaying good with evil. That's what Saul was doing. Saul was doing what David is, David's enemies are doing here. We've seen it ourselves, have we not? David treats Saul with honor, with deference. Saul repays his goodness, not with goodness in kind, but with evil. David conducts himself very differently. But as for me, verse 13, can you see the contrast, right? But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. David says, I humbled or I afflicted myself with fasting. My prayer would return to my own heart. I paced as though he were my friend. I paced as though he were my brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. There's difficult language in the text, but you get the picture, right? You get the picture. Verses 13 and 14, David has shown love for his enemies. The implication here is that David has shown love for his enemies up until the point where they came against him with his wicked plot and during the time that they are accusing him and acting against him. David is demonstrating compassion, love, care, concern for them both before and during this trial. He has applied the principle at the heart of Romans chapter 12, verse 14, blessing them and not cursing, right? Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. He's not reviled them in return. He has not treated them spitefully. He's done nothing to deserve their hostility against him. In fact, he's treated them with kindness and compassion. David essentially says, in verse 13, verse 14, I didn't declare a feast. I didn't rejoice at their calamity. I put on sackcloth. Sackcloth, a symbol for his grief, a symbol for his sorrow, his sympathy for them. David said, I afflicted myself. I deprived myself of food, denied myself comfort. When they were in need, I prayed for them, right? This is how David is responding to them, despite the, the fact that they've responded to him with reviling. Can you see the difference between the two? <laughs> it's, it's light and darkness is the difference between them. It's the difference between, between Christ and Belial. That's the chasm that exists between them. They returned evil for good. David returned good for their evil. It would have been natural, quote unquote natural, for David would to have responded to their evil in kind. That would have been quote unquote natural. But David rises above, rises above what is natural to the common man. And David, in consideration of how the Lord had treated him, in consideration of God's goodness to David, David repays their evil with good. And that's the principle from Romans 12 in action here. That's the principle from Romans 12 applied here. To what end? To what end? Again, this principle is not given in a vacuum. This principle is set upon a granite foundation. And it's a granite foundation upon which we, brothers and sisters, are to respond in the same way. 
To what end does David conduct himself in this way? To what purpose? One, to adorn the gospel, to magnify the grace and mercy of God. This is the way that God has treated David. David returns in kind to treat even his enemies, especially his enemies in this way. To magnify the glory of God in his grace and mercy toward us when we were enemies of God by wicked works. God was merciful. God shows you mercy. If you have not turned to Jesus Christ in faith, if you've not turned from your sin to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God by wicked works. You are a rebel against God because of your sin. And how is God treating you right now? He has you in this room listening to the gospel. That is the kindness of God, the goodness of God that should lead you to repentance. God allows you to breathe his air. Take a deep breath. That's God's air you're breathing. You're going to walk out where it's raining. That's God's rain that's falling. You're going to walk out into the sunlight. That's God's sun that is shining. God has been good to you. God has been good to you. And how do you repay him? If you've not turned to faith in Jesus Christ, how are you repaying him? You're essentially saying, I don't need you, God. I want to live life for myself. I'm the master of my faith. I'm the captain of my soul. I'll do what I please. To what end does David act in this way? To the end that David might adorn the gospel, the grace and mercy of God. But secondly, secondly, it's that goodness. It's that forbearance. It's that patience. It's that kindness that should lead the wicked to repentance. That's Romans chapter two. It should lead them to repentance. Brothers and sisters, you can see how in treating even our enemies, especially our enemies with that kind of love, how we entreat them to the gospel. We leave room for the wrath of God. We're not disqualifying or nullifying the righteous judgment of God. And yet at the same time, we're entreating them with the gospel. That's the kind of love that adorns the gospel. It magnifies the grace and mercy of God. It's how you and I have been loved. We ourselves were enemies of God when he did not spare his own son, but rather delivered him up for us all. Now, in direct contrast then to David's compassion, look at how they treated him, verse 15. But in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. They were delighted in his trouble. He's going to get it now, right? Attackers gathered against me and I did not know it. They rejoiced and gathered together. The language there refers to attacking with the tongue, right? He was, again, this is slander. This is malicious gossip. They're attacking with the tongue. And again, David is surprised by it. He's been oblivious. They tore at me and did not cease with ungodly mockers at feasts They gnashed at me with their teeth. David sees this as a a cruel and a heartless injustice. Verse 17, Lord, Lord, how long will you look on? It's like the cry of the martyrs under the altar, Revelation chapter six. Oh Lord, holy and true, how long, how long, right? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. I will give you thanks, Lord, in the great assembly. I will praise you among my people, among many people. Notice again, just as section one ended with praise to God, section two in the psalm ends with praise to God. Praise to God for his gracious deliverance. David wants to see the vindication of his God so that he may praise him for coming to his aid so that he may praise him for his righteous judgments. 
David didn't always conduct himself in this way. If you remember from 1 Samuel 25, uh, David encounters a very wealthy, but a very wicked and a very foolish Nabal. Uh, Nabal had, it says there in 1 Samuel 25, 3,000 sheep, 3,000 sheep, (laughs) 1,000 goats. And David's young men, when they were passing through, David's young men had watched out for Nabal's shepherds, had watched out for Nabal's flocks. They were an army of mighty men. And so they protected Nabal's shepherds, Nabal's flocks. They were good to Nabal. They had done Nabal good. They saw to it that while they were there, while they were passing through, nothing happened to Nabal, nothing happened to his men, nothing happened to his flocks. Nothing was taken from him of all that he had. And then how does Nabal, the wicked fool, how does Nabal respond to David's kindness? When David and his men needed sheep in order to observe a feast day, in order to worship, Nabal responded this way, who is David? And who is that son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. David's on the run from his enemies. Shall I take my bread then and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears? My, my, my. And give it to men when I do not know where they are from? In that particular instance, David didn't respond didn't respond by turning to the Lord in his time of need or turning to the Lord with his righteous indignation. David took up his sword in anger. And the only thing, the only thing that prevented David from putting Nabal's head on a spike that very day and all the men who were with him was Abigail, Nabal's wife, whom David commends for her wisdom and her kindness and her love for preventing David from sinning by coming to bloodshed over the matter. David knew that what he had done was rash, that it was sinful. We see a far different response from David in Psalm 35, a far different response. It's a response that exemplifies that principle that has been established in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. David was full of cursing and bitterness that day that he met Nabal, Nabal's men. The third section of the Psalm then brings David's imprecatory prayer to a close. Verse 19, David prays, let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies. Let them not gloat over me. David takes a particular insult, if you will, from this gloating. And if you think about this, brothers and sisters, we'll give an opportunity, we'll think more on this another time but this is the way that the Lord himself was treated. This is a psalm, this is a psalm that looks forward, if you will, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. David's treatment here is the treatment that the Lord Jesus Christ endured times infinity. <laughs> it's the treatment that the Lord endured against his enemies when he went to Calvary for us. Uh, you can think about it that way. And the, the gospels emphasize that mocking that gloating. The, the, gospel, the gospels emphasize those insults that are hurled at him uh, almost as much as the scourging and his death upon the cross, mocking that, those insults. Let them not rejoice over me. Let them not gloat over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. 
The one, the one who winks with the eye is the one who says one thing to your face while he's plotting something else. While he plots against you behind your back. He says words of kindness to your face while he's slipping the dagger between your ribs, right? Or stabbing you in the back. Four, verse 20. Because they do not speak peace. They devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. David's just trying to do the Lord's work. David's trying to just, he's trying to live life for the Lord as a quiet one in the land. And they come against him. They also, verse 21, opened their mouth wide against me and said, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. They're claiming to see a wrong that never happened. That's what that means. They're claiming to see a wrong that never happened. When God sees the facts of the case, verse 22, this, this whole thing, Lord, you have seen. Do not keep silence, O Lord, do not be far from me. God not only sees David's innocence, but he also sees that David is being slandered, falsely accused, mocked, derided, reviled, and the judge of all the earth will do right. David's prayer, in light of that fact, verse 23, stir up yourself, Awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. We're often comfortable saying, vindicate your righteous name, O God. Vindicate your cause, your kingdom, your methods, your word. Vindicate yourself, O God. David here prays, God, vindicate me. Vindicate me. The only way that you can pray that prayer is if you are innocent of the charges that are made against you. Can you see that? David is innocent of the charges that have been made against him. Otherwise, this prayer is, does not, um, is not free from the stain or the stench of hypocrisy. David prays, verse 24, Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. And again, don't let them gloat over me, O God. Verse 25, let them not say in their hearts, Ah, so we would have it. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame. Let them be clothed with dishonor who exalt themselves against me. Again, that reference to gloating. Aside from the slander, aside from the false accusations, the assaults against him, it was the gloating over his calamity that seemed to be most hurtful to David. Voice again. Defeat we can usually handle. But when people rejoice in our failures or mock us in our defeats, the wounds are more than doubled. Judge, O God. David prays, judge, O God, and let us see it. Verse 27, let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. When God judges, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. You see David's commitment to praise and worship when God delivers him. That needs to be our commitment as well. So we've considered Psalm 35. We've considered Psalm 35 as a balanced example of how to apply the principle that we've learned from Romans chapter 12. This is a good example of how we show love for our enemies. This is a good example and at the same time, leave place for the wrath of God, and at the same time, seek the vindication of God for his righteous judgment upon the wicked when we've been unjustly treated, when we've been wronged. One of the reasons that Paul emphasizes this in Romans 12 and, and why it's emphasized throughout the Bible 
is because the temptation to avenge ourselves in thought, word, or in deed, the temptation to avenge yourself is very strong. It's a, it's a powerful temptation. But David here does not respond to the injustice done against him with bitterness in his heart. He doesn't respond with anger or cursing in his heart. He doesn't respond with cursing in his words or cursing in his conduct. David doesn't seek to avenge himself. He doesn't seek to get even in his words or in his actions. He doesn't mock or revile in return. Notice, notice with me, the one praying in this way is innocent of the false charges made against him. An injustice has been committed. Their enemies hate them without a cause. In other words, they've said all manner of evil things against you falsely for the sake of his name. We can pray this way when that is our circumstance. If we've sinned in the matter, there needs to be repentance. When we find ourselves treated as David was treated here, we should conduct ourselves as David has conducted himself here. And we should pray as David has prayed. We pray for their repentance. And then we pray for God's righteous judgment to be displayed when there is a lack of repentance so that the saints might rejoice in his righteous judgment so that the saints might praise him. And when we call upon God, we know, we know, we know that he hears us. Let me close with this from Luke 18. Luke 18, verse one. Lord Jesus Christ, preaching a parable to his disciples. Verse one, he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to this judge saying, get justice for me from my adversary. That's the role of the judge. Verse four, and he would not for a while, but afterward, he said within himself, though I do, this unjust judge said this within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. Even an unjust judge like this, uh, a lost judge, a lost judge like this, is going to do that, is going to act and avenge this woman in this condition. Verse six, then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears along with them? I tell you that he will avenge them and he will avenge them speedily. God is just. If the unjust judge will do it, certainly. From an argument from the far lesser to the far greater, God absolutely will. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? In other words, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Brothers and sisters, if we believe it, and bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. While blessing, while not cursing, pray for their repentance and 
if repentance is lacking, when you've done as much as you can do, as much as depends upon you to live at peace with all men, we can pray as David prayed in Psalm 35 and know that our Lord hears us. We can know that he comes to our aid and we can know that his judgments are righteous and we can rejoice in him for that. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for teaching us. We need instruction in this. We want to honor you. We love you, Lord, and we are grateful for the grace and mercy that has been poured out on us. So in light of that grace and mercy, we want to love our enemies as you've commanded us to love them. We want to pray for them as you've instructed us, as you've commended in your word that we should pray for them. We want to conduct ourselves as David has conducted himself as a good example. We want to conduct ourselves the way the Lord Jesus Christ conducted himself when he was spitefully treated on our behalf or in our place. Lord, help us to do this, which is very difficult for the natural man, very difficult when we consider the, often the first response that comes out of our flesh. But help us to do this knowing that it is this command, this good command is set upon a foundation of your grace and mercy shown to us in the gospel. And to do it knowing that it magnifies the grace and mercy of our God, the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's done such good to us hoping, praying that the goodness and forbearance of God would lead them to repentance. But if not, anticipating the day when your righteous judgments will fall and your saints would praise and worship you. You are righteous and just. Thank you. We're grateful for that. Worship you in light of it in Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.